Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the board briefing for the Board of Multnomah County Commissioners. Audience members, I want to start by asking you to please silence your electronic devices. For all presenters, please state your name for the record before speaking or responding to questions. Today's first briefing is on the Earthquake Ready Burnside Bridge project. Um, I'm going to have just a little bit of introdu um, introductory remarks as folks come down to the dais. Um, I have been working on the EQRB project since I took office as a commissioner in 2017. And I really care deeply about how this bridge will be a conduit to the infrastructural support we are going to need during a Cascadia subduction earthquake. Um, we, there was just a report that recently came out that says, you know, Oregon is actually more susceptible to earthquakes than previously thought. So this is a reality for us. Um, it is also, though, one of the um, fundamental bridges that connects our city um, and divides us from north and south and east and west um, as Burnside Street. So it is something that's incredibly important to our community. Um, I am so glad that we are entering the design phase now. This will be the process we use to ensure that community voice continues to be engaged as we design the best possible bridge to serve our community for the next century. I'm pleased that we've brought our construction contractor for the project, Burnside Bridge Partners, which will, is a joint venture between three notable firms with great records of success on projects of this magnitude. As we continue this work, my focus will be on securing the funding needed to complete this project. We're in a strong place at this point, and I'm committed to working with our state and federal pro, um, partners to make sure that we have the funds needed to complete this project. Now, I'm happy to turn it over to Megan Neal to um, kick off today's presentation. Good morning. Good morning, Chair, Commissioners. Thank you for having us today. Um, Taylor Steenblock is actually going to kick us off today with our introductions. Good morning, Chair, members of the board. Um, stick with me today. I'm recovering from a cold, so my voice might be just a little bit scratchy. But uh, my name is Taylor Steenblock, she, her pronouns, and I'm the Strategic Initiatives Manager for Multnomah County's Department of Community Services. And I'll let the rest of our team introduce themselves as well. Megan Neal, um, Design Phase Project Manager for Earthquake Ready. Uh, Emily Militich, she, her, um, I'm the Construction Phase Project Manager for Earthquake Ready Burnside Bridge. Sarah Hurwitz, I'm the Public Information Officer for Transportation for the County and for this project. And we'll kick it off with the next slide. So just an agenda overview for today. Um, we'll talk a little bit about the environmental review phase and what it means to close that phase of this project out. Um, we'll talk about the design phase kickoff and what we'll be seeing for the next year in 2024. There will be a lot of technical information uh, during this presentation. So if you have any questions, um, we'll definitely look forward to answering those at the end of the presentation today. Next slide. So just some things about this project. Um, I know most of you have gotten a briefing in the last month or so, but we just wanted to do a quick overview and talk about why this is important and what's guiding the work that we will be doing on this project. Next slide. Um, so I think uh, the chair summed it up relatively well. We do have quite a significant earthquake risk in Portland. Um, I just wanted to add a couple of additional factoids onto that. So the first thing I wanted to note is that last Friday was actually the 324th anniversary of the last Cascadia subdu subduction zone earthquake. Um, what that means for us is that this exceeds 75% of all intervals for past Cascadia subduction zone earthquakes. So we are actually expecting um, 
an earthquake at any point. I believe the statute or the uh, statistic is that there's a one in three chance in the next 50 years. Um, but we are facing that risk, and we want to make sure and be proactive so we can save the money we would have to spend after the event um, and really invest in this infrastructure today. The other thing that I would just note is that Portland has sort of a unique risk, even relative to California, and that California sees regular and frequent but smaller earthquakes, whereas Portland really only sees one large earthquake. And then there's a really long lag time between those events. So what that means is that much of our infrastructure was built um, after the last Cascadia subduction, but there wasn't a lot of memory of what that event was like. So much of our infrastructure needs updating, and um, really we have done a couple other bridge projects with seismic resiliency in mind, but the Burnside is going to be a whole new approach to making our region more resilient um, and recovery focused. Next slide. Um, Another thing that's really interesting to note is that none of our downtown bridges are currently usable immediately after an earthquake. That's why we're focusing so heavily on the Burnside Bridge. It's going to be really important that we have an east-west connection um, immediately usable after an earthquake for all modes of um, and for all users. So we, we want to make sure that trucks and emergency response vehicles can use it, but also people who might be stuck on one side or the other and needing to get home to their families um, or home to a safe place after um, being out during the day. Next slide. And then this slide just shows an image of Burnside Road specifically. You can see that the bridge is a connection for a road that is relatively unencumbered and connects our county from east to west for a pretty significant mileage. Um, we also have another map I'm sure you've seen that shows seismic risk along most of our emergency transportation routes. And Burnside specifically has a relatively few number of upgrades we would need to do. So um, it ties our county together and it creates an access point downtown and it is really very critical for the long term recovery and also the short-term safety um, that the bridge can offer. Next slide. Um, and then this slide has some project goals and objectives. Really, these are not meant to be ranked as of importance. We try as best we can to balance all of these goals and objectives every time we're faced with a decision to be made on this project. So, um, you know, I think financial responsibility is one of the things we're talking about a lot during the funding phase for this project, but we definitely have also put safety and resiliency and many of these other things um, to the forefront as we move into the design phase. Next slide. And here is where we're at today. You can see 2024 is solidly in the design phase and past environmental review. Um, Emily and Megan will talk a lot more about this uh, in the presentation later today, but just sort of to situate ourselves, uh, we are looking at likely completion for the project in 2031. And then the question everyone has, where are we with funding? So we have secured $300 million in vehicle registration fees for this project. Um, just a shout out to the city of Portland. We were able to increase our VRF collection and um, put that money towards the bridge thanks to a partnership with other local governments in the area. We also have $20 million in state legislative funding thanks to House Bill 5030 from the last session. And then um, federally, we have a federalized project with $7 million in a race planning grant and a congressional earmark from uh, Congressman Blumenauer. So we are still seeking to fill about a $600 million hole. Um, and we are pursuing federal grants as best we can. And then our legislative strategy for 2025 will also be a key component to funding this project um, through to completion. Next slide. And I'll hand it over for the environmental review phase. Thanks, Thanks Taylor. 
So just want to take a moment in the presentation to really celebrate all the hard work that the project and the county has put forward in completing the environmental review phase. We've been working on this since 2019 and here in 2024, we're really excited to close this out and move on into uh, pivot to the design phase. Next slide, please. So just a brief reminder of what is the environmental review phase. You know, it's kind of a very complex um, federal process. It's hard to understand. So I just wanted to distill it down to um, the basics. So essentially, if you have uh, federal funds or are seeking federal funds, you need to um, complete this process by which includes doing a robust analysis of uh, the impacts and benefits of a range of alternatives that satisfy your purpose and need. You need to, need to look at um, all the impacts and benefits to essentially people, places, and the planet. And then ultimately, you want to select the alternative that has the most benefit with the least amount of harm. Um, this was um, a federal process in, uh, signed into law in 1970 through the National Environmental Policy Act. And ultimately, uh, at the end of the process, you come away with an alternative that you advance into the design phase um, based on strong community input uh, for further analysis. And that's where we are today. Next slide, please. We, just a reminder, we did evaluate in depth for alternatives within our range of alternatives. Um, we, we looked at preserving the existing bridge that's out there today, bringing it up to current seismic code. We also looked at a replacement option that had um, many fewer peers uh, supporting the bridge as the current bridge. Um, however, more so than the following option, which is a replacement long span. Um, and then finally, we did look at a replacement option that um, added an additional leg to the bridge alignment, connecting into the street system in a way that bypasses that really um, uh, curvy S curve that gets you onto the bridge today, thinking that that might be helpful, helpful after an earthquake to maintain flow of traffic. Next slide, please. At the end of the day, the preferred alternative we selected was the replacement long span that we are currently advancing into the design phase. You can see two versions of the bridge types we have, uh, were taking uh, into further analysis on the screen. On the left, we have a tied arch option over there on the east span, and then on the right, we have a cable stay option on the east span. Um, there are other components of the bridge alternative, includes a uh, bascule-style movable bridge over the navigation channel, similar to what's out there today, as well as a primarily open girder-style structure on the west approach, also similar to what's out there today. Next slide, please. One component of the preferred alternative we wanted to highlight was that we did do some extensive analysis into the idea of installing a temporary movable bridge on site during construction to maintain at least some flow of traffic. Um, however, after, um, after our analysis, we did determine it was about $90 million, an extra year of construction, and didn't really provide the uh, flow that the current bridge does. There was still, um, be some congestion. So ultimately, uh, we uh, we heard from the community we want to get this bridge built as fast as possible. So we are opting to close the bridge during construction for that four or five year time. We are uh, lucky to have so many other bridges on along the river, so that affords us the opportunity to do that. On the next slide, just wanted to share the cross section that we. Uh, 
landed uh, with at the end of our environmental review phase. Um, you may recall we did uh, go through a cost-saving exercise near the end of um, 2021 to find ways to um, keep the project cost within a range of something we felt was achievable to fund. That did result in the removal of a vehicular lane on the bridge. So what you see on the screen is a four-lane option that we are planning to uh, design. Uh, we, the benefits of this option, however, are uh, still in alignment with our uh, regional values for promoting um, active transportation and transit options that really sets this bridge up well to serve the capacity of our, um, of our users in the future. We're looking at a 14 to 17 foot wide multi-use path on either side that meets or exceeds the, the widest multi-use path on any bridge in downtown Portland. Not only is that great, we are, uh, we are making it even greater by adding a physical barrier separation between bike pads and vehicular users. We hear oftentimes that this bridge um, kind of feels like a freeway when people are um, walking or biking over it just simply because it's wide and people tend to um, increase their speed as they go over their bridge. So we're excited to offer that additional uh, user safety and comfort feature. We are preserving the existing eastbound bus lane that's uh, out there today. In addition, we are allowing to easily implement a, another eastbound bus lane going the west, direct, west direction, should that be warranted in the future. We also are designing the bridge to support a future streetcar line, which is in some existing plans. So we're really uh, very forward thinking with this cross section. On the next slide, um, I'll hand it over to Sarah to talk a little bit of how we engage the community in this space. Thank you, Megan. So throughout this project, uh, the community's voice is um, a huge priority for this project. We wanna make sure that we're taking the community with us. We know that this bridge is really important to the community and it sits at the heart of downtown Portland. So throughout the environmental review phase, um, we did give the community a number of um, opportunities to weigh in on the project and really provide feedback. Here's kind of a brief um, snapshot of some of the things that we did um, during the environmental review phase. We had more than 350 briefings with various different organizations, um, some who may be directly impacted um, by the work in the construction, others who may have a DEI focus. Um, we also had seven online open houses. So these were opportunities for the community to learn more about the project in kind of a virtual setting, but they also were um, opportunities to provide input. So there were several surveys that were wrapped into these online open houses. And um, we did ask for feedback on a number of different things throughout the environmental review phase that included um, narrowing the range of options um, as well as uh, the bridge type. And we also had more than 13,000 survey responses throughout that process. So we really had the community show up um, and provide um, input on what they, they want this bridge to not only look like, but kind of have a connection to as we go through this process. Um, community task force meetings, we also held policy group meetings. Examples of people that would sit in those uh, meetings are elected leaders, other agencies at the table, TriMet, folks like that. Um, and we also worked with a number of different diverse organizations. So as we continue into the design phase, we really wanna take the community with us. 
and I'll be talking a little bit more about that, about what we plan to do. And I'll toss it back to Megan. Thanks, Sarah. So we're really excited to share that um, we have a, on the next slide, please, thank you. Um, we have a signed record of decision and we're um, just making our final checks uh, right now as we prepare to publish the final environmental impact statement on our website. So I'm thinking February 8th or 9th, it will be on the web and officially closed out. So we're very excited about that. And then finally, closing out this phase, uh, we really just want to, on the next slide, thank you, just want to express appreciation for all the regional partners that showed up to uh, support this project throughout the process, whether it was attending the policy group meetings, uh, providing letters of support for funding asks, or just um, staff uh, participating in technical working groups to figure out how we are going to make this project successful. We really couldn't do it without all these, uh, our regional support of this project. So I just wanna uh, say thank you to all those organizations. So with that, I'll hand it over to Emily to talk us through the design phase. Slide, please. <clears throat> so as uh, Megan described all of our NEPA process, we've been working through that for the last four to five years. And that is really critical work because that work sets, sets you up for success for the design phase. So if you don't do a good job in NEPA, it makes your work in design really challenging. Um, and we have a lot of work to accomplish in a relatively small amount of time. So I think just going back and celebrating all of the work that has been done is really important and congratulating that team. Um, next slide, please. So we um, officially have all of our uh, team that will be working through the design phase on board. We have our um, architect and engineering team that has been with us since the very beginning of the uh, NEPA phase and even before that in uh, the early uh, Burnside maintenance project that we had. So they are continuing along and that really brings um, great continuity throughout the entire life of the project. So we're excited to have them on board. We also brought on a, a specialty bridge architect, uh, Beam Architects, who are gonna be really helping us work with our community design advisory group um, and determining um, first and foremost what that east approach looks like. So whether it's that cable stay um, or the arch that um, Megan showed previously. Um, and then they'll also be helping us as we advance in design, just looking at the various architectural treatment options. How can the community engage with the project team to really make the bridge something that um, they're proud of, something that they own? And then um, we also have an owner's rep team that's really here to kind of fill in the breadth and depth of expertise for the county team. That's really critical. You know, we're a, a pretty lean and mean transportation team and having that extra um, expertise is critical for helping us move forward with um, all the various permitting and, um, and design technical expertise that we need. And then lastly, um, as uh, Chair Vega Peterson mentioned, we brought on our uh, contracting team. So that's a joint venture between Stacy Whitbeck, American Bridge, and Trailer Brothers, known as uh, the Burnside Bridge Partners. Um, they bring expertise in this very complex type of construction, movable construction. And I think that they also bring a lot of expertise and experience in engaging 
um, workforce, particularly in how to develop regionally diverse workforce, working with our disadvantaged business enterprises um, to really build a community of subcontracting team to build this job because we know that there's a lot of work in this region and it's going to re really require building up of the workforce, not just sort of um, kind of doing the normal things that we do with everyday capital projects. Next slide, please. Um, so here's a little bit more detail on what the design phase timeline actually looks like. So we are starting the design phase basically this year, a great way to kick off 2024. Um, this year is gonna be really focused on getting to that type selection for the East approach. So you can see there between the second and third quarter of 2024, we have a public input and CDAG, um, the Community Design Advisory Group, um, work that's really gonna be happening to try and get to that bridge type selection. That's really critical work. We really need all aspects of the team to make that successful. So bringing in that contractor to give us the early price certainty, help us understand what the schedule looks like, identify risks and start that early engagement with the workforce. We do anticipate that by um, the end of this year and then leading into 2025, we'll be starting the right-of-way acquisition phase. Um, so we're gonna be looking really now at what do we actually need in forms of kind of temporary easements, permanent easements to be able to build the bridge that we ultimately select um, uh, for the entire length. And then uh, starting in 2026, potential early work packages for pre-construction. Um, so those look like roadway improvements so that whatever detours we have along uh, the route, they are um, ADA accessible, they have improvements around transit, um, and really help the community move around the bridge um, during that five, four to five year closure that we anticipate having. And then starting bridge closure, closure as early as January of 2027, and that would last um, mostly through 2031. Next slide, please. Okay, so here's what's coming in the design phase for public outreach. We're gonna, of course, continue to keep the community um, updated and informed. We'll have a number of stakeholder briefings, again, with those who might be directly impacted. Examples would be like the Portland Rescue Mission, organizations like that that sit right at the head of the bridge. Um, we'll also hold bridge tours with elected leaders um, and the community really just to give a sense of not only things that you might not get to see if you haven't been on a bridge tour already they're pretty awesome um, get to kind of go down um, beneath the burnside bridge but also really point out the reasons why we need to replace this bridge um, as far as seismic resiliency goes. We'll be um, holding several online open houses, webinars. Um, I'll be leading the production of several videos this year as well. Um, the first one that we have kind of coming up in the can will be kind of a one minute teaser. And it's really to get the community excited about where we're at, to tell them what's coming in the design phase and what we're looking for from them. This is a really important year for this project. Um, and we're gonna be asking the community some really important questions about what we want the bridge to look like. And we'll be working with the um, engaging the community in a number of different ways through social media, updating our website and several community events. And I'll turn it back to you. Next slide, please. <clears throat> yep, there we go. Um, so as I mentioned, the Burnside Bridge Partners, they bring a lot of experience to the regional workforce development and engagement with disadvantaged business enterprises. 
Um, we've set really high goals on this project and we intend to be a leader in the region in terms of not just building a workforce for this project, but building a workforce for the next 50 years, building a workforce that we know is gonna serve the entire community and not necessarily just our project. Um, you know, we really uh, are striving to diversify the workforce. We know that uh, we have a lot of work to do in terms of um, increasing participation from women and minorities within the construction trades. So that's gonna be a focus of the work that we're doing over the next few years. Um, we really wanna provide opportunities to uplift our communities and particularly our upper, up up underrepresented and most vulnerable communities. We know that construction trade jobs um, provide family, wage, family wages um, and are great opportunities um, to help people build long-term successful careers. Um, and we're also, we also wanna focus not just on getting uh, folks into the trades, but also retaining them because that's a uh, real challenge that we have in the industry is uh, once people are on board and they're excited and they get the training, it's really keeping them uh, engaged in, in the industry. Um, we also wanna use this project as an opportunity to develop new uh, disadvantaged business enterprises. There's a lot of um, small businesses who qualify but just may not know the process for how you go about to get that certification, which can help them um, kind of ease their way into the industry. And so this project really, uh, one of the goals is to help uh, become a pipeline for those small businesses. Um, it's also, we have really high uh, disadvantaged business enterprise um, percentage that's required on this project. So in order to meet that, we're really gonna have to um, kind of grow the skill base um, within the industry. So that's a great opportunity just to develop new skills within those organizations. Um, and, then, and then the other piece is just working towards engagement with um, the kind of regional community organizations to help us do this work. Because we know that we can't just do this by ourselves. We can't just do it as transportation or this project. We need help from the entire region. Um, so really trying to harness the partnerships and relationships that we have with the existing uh, community organizations. Next slide, please. And this is just a quick summary of some of those aspirational targets and the requirements just within our contract. Um, we know that we can meet or exceed these goals, um, but they are lofty and it's really exciting that we can sort of be that front runner um, in the region for accomplishing these targets. So that looks like 14% women, 25% minority participation, a range of 15 to 20, 21% for those DBE um, organizations, 20% apprenticeship by trade, which matches the county's goals um, that we have on all of our other uh, capital projects. 20% uh, of all of the workforce have to be from local priority zip codes, which is really exciting because that really forces us to be investing in our local community, not just bringing in workforce from outside. Um, and then we also have a project labor agreement on this project, as well as an acceptable worksite program. And that acceptable worksite program really focuses on that retention piece that I talked about earlier. So how do we create a culture in the workplace that um, encourages people to stay and continue within the industry? Next slide, please. So with that, I just wanna talk really briefly about what we can expect in 2024. We've touched a lot on it already. Um, next slide, please. 
So um, coming up, some of the key decisions and milestones in uh, spring of 2024, we're really spending time with BEAM architects and with our contractor and our A&E firm to focus in on what are the ranges of sort of the forms of those very two different um, east approach types, so the cable stay or the arch, um, and coming up with that whole range of alternatives, doing a pricing exercise, identifying risks that are associated with, with each of those so that we know by the fall um, which options we wanna move forward with. In uh, summer of 2024, we will be taking that range of options to the Community Design Advisory Group and the public to be getting their input and ultimately looking for the recommendation from the uh, Community Design Advisory Group for which bridge type they um, prefer. Um, and that leads us to a fall of 2024 decision on bridge type, which we'll be coming back to the board um, for acceptance. And then a fall winter 2024 uh, publication of our 30% um, design milestone package. And what that really looks like is sort of setting the stage for what the design, the rest of the design phase is uh, gonna be moving forward with. Next slide, please. So with that, um, thank you for your time. And um, do you have any questions for us? Thank you so much for the presentation. Um, 2024 is going to be a big year for this project, and that's really exciting. Um, I'll turn it over to the board for any questions or comments. We'll start with Commissioner Stegman. Good morning. It's great to see all of you here. Four strong women <laughs> building a bridge. <laughs> People. Uh, I did have a couple of questions. So about the locally preferred uh, alternative. So we're looking at the tide arch or the cable stay tower. Can you maybe just roughly talk about like maybe what the pros and cons of each of those alternatives is? Yeah, um, we are going to be uh, really looking closely at the differences between the two options in terms of the price, uh, the amount of risk to the county, how easily can it be constructed with minimal impact to say the freeway below, um, as well as um, what, are, what are the keys to the long-term maintenance program? Is one easier to maintain than the other? Um, did I miss anything? There? Maybe just also the right-of-way impacts. There's different impacts depending on what option we select, so that would be another consideration. I will say though that our goal is to work alongside the bridge architect and the contractor and the designer to really flesh out as many uh, uh, variations on these two concepts as possible to provide as wide a range of feasible bridge options to take to the public to weigh in on. We, um, we just want to screen for what we feel like we can reasonably build and afford. Great, that sounds reasonable. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the, uh, so it sounds like there's been a traffic study with the closure of the Burnside Bridge and what kind of impact that's going to have? Yeah, we've actually done extensive analysis. We do have our um, design technical lead in the audience there, if you may want to speak more eloquently about our traffic studies and results, if you would like. All right, Chair DVP and, and commissioners. Uh, I'm, my name is Steve Drahood. I'm with HER Engineering. I was the consultant project manager during the NEPA phase that led the traffic analysis, and I'm the consultant project manager for the design team going forward, so I'm pleased to be here. Um, a robust traffic analysis within the city core was developed in conjunction with the city of Portland itself to see what kind of trade-offs would there be by reducing the number of lanes on the bridge 
in the eastbound direction. Westbound is really the same as today. So in the eastbound direction is one less lane. And what the analysis found is, and this is in conjunction and endorsed by the city, is by reducing one lane and allocating that space to bikes and peds, number one is it helps to shift the user types to uh, bicycles, pedestrians, and transit buses. Uh, so that's, that's fortunate. And then from just a pure congestion standpoint for vehicles that do choose to use the bridge, um, there's very little difference on the bridge itself. It really comes down to how do the cars uh, taper into the reduced number of lanes going eastbound um, in the PM peak. So basically when, when people or folks are done with work in the evening, they want to go eastward uh, home. They did find there's a little bit of congestion in the city network um, as folks are just dis, uh, dispersing to other bridges. But within the bridge itself, there's only a 5% difference in expected delay. Because even today, with the number of lanes, there's some congestion on the bridge itself at those peak hours. So a really fairly minor uh, change in traffic uh, pattern is expected. And so that's why we said, you know, we really want to have the city of Portland uh, do, a, do a review, a peer review of that. And they came up with essentially the same results. So, so as a project team, we feel very confident that the traffic congestion problem is not gonna be overly burdensome to the community. And it helps to promote this bridge that maintains the same width and, and really does promote these active transportation choices that, that we feel the city and the county and others uh, aspire for. Thank you. <clears throat> And then, okay, and during construction, I'm getting lots of clues. Um, <laughs> during construction, it goes back to if there was a bridge, then uh, it would be what kind of bridge is there. And so number one is one lane in each direction. And so, and it has to be a movable bridge uh, because you have to allow ships to go through. So what that really means is there's only a five minute differential between the expected delay times if there was this temporary bridge versus having no bridge at all. And so because that five minute differential compared to about $100 million in cost, another year and a half in construction, more environmental impacts because you're putting a lot of temporary works in the river, ultimately advised by the community task force, the answer was don't put that in. That's a bad use of public funds. We want the project done sooner. So there is a little bit of travel delay because there's no bridge during construction, but, but because of the offsets of all the benefits of not having it, the decision was made to go forward and utilize that network of bridges that exist around the project site. Great, thank you. I'm, I'm surprised, that's amazing. A five minute delay is all, or that would be improved if we had a, a temporary bridge. Um, I'm surprised at that number, but. I'm sorry, let me clarify. A five minute difference in difference. the delay. Right, so, so depending on where your travel patterns come from, it could be a 10 or even 15 minute delay overall, um, but that difference between having um, the bridge or not comes down to a five minute differential. So no matter what you did, there was gonna be delay to, right. to traffic patterns, but it really comes down to what's your starting point and your ending point. And sometimes those delays are very small. It's, it's a matter of two or three minutes. And sometimes when you're coming out of direction, it, it, it grows because of other ways. So the five minute differential is what we were really focusing on. I see what you're saying. Okay, so there will be some uh, traffic impacts. Um, well, thank you for answering my questions. Uh, I just want to congratulate the team. It's very exciting uh, that we're out of the environmental review and into the design phase. Uh, I love uh, all the equity and diversity that's being built into the project. Uh, especially love the physical barrier for the bikes and, and peds uh, to be separated from the vehicles. And uh, 
congratulations and let's go design a bridge. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Graham Edwards. Good morning, thank you for the presentation. Uh, it's exciting to be moving into the next phase and just share appreciation for um, the work that's happened uh, to now. As somebody who's been either driving across that bridge um, or being driven across that bridge when I before I got my driver's license, um, for more than 50 years, um, I realized how important this bridge is to um, our city and the county and um, know that um, given what could happen with Cascadia, it's even more important, not just as an everyday transportation route. And looking at the timeline, it appears um, that um, we all will have uh, different parts of um, work on, on this as commissioner, since it's gonna be a nine-year nine project, so we may be engaged in just different pieces of it. Um, I'm interested in, during my tenure on the county commission of being a champion for um, getting the resources for it. This is just, it's not only critical for just as a, a, an essential route, but also um, for commerce. Um, I know in my previous uh, professional life, um, planning for Cascadia and business resiliency, um, that this was a key, a, a key issue of how to move people around, um, how to move employees around um, if Cascadia happened. So I'm um, delighted we're moving to the next stage in the project. I had a couple questions um, about the design in this particular phase, and I'm curious about the, um, when we are having conversations with the community, how will, um, assuming functionality is equal, how will cost play into the design selection, um, assuming that different designs have different costs and how that will either be a, a governor over the project or, or not? Yeah, so um, right now the way that the process is set up is so that um, we're working through those early estimates for all of the various forms and different alternatives. And then at the end of that process, we have a slew of criteria, so including cost, schedule, risk, constructability, um, that we'll use as a filter um, that all of the alternatives will go through. And then those alternatives that come out the other side of the filter will really be all things that uh, we can afford to build, things that are constructible, uh, that have an acceptable level of risk, and then uh, those options will go to that community design advisory group um, and the, the general public for their input. So really anything that goes to them, we already know is um, buildable, is fundable. Um, and right now we're looking at ranges of sort of differentiating options from zero to uh, $50 million. And those are still sort of being flushed out, but uh, that's sort of the range of what we're looking at in terms of uh, baseline costs uh, moving forward. I'm sorry, just to make sure I understand the zero to 50 million, that's- Differential. Differential me. among the- Among the alternatives, yep. Alternatives. yep. So um, if something is $100 million more than what we expect the sort of average cost to be, then that wouldn't go forward to um, the community. So if it's within 50 million, and then would there be guidance to the community, the di design advisory group about, so say risk and functionality is somewhat equal, um, the cost, will that be a limiter or just be advised <laughs> that it's, there's a cost differential 
Yeah, so if it's outside of that range or if it doesn't sort of meet those criteria, then they wouldn't go forward to the community. We are still uh, coming up with the plan for how we communicate what the options are, how the um, how the county went through the process of evaluating them so that that's really transparent. Uh, we wanna make sure that um, the community is aware of everything that we looked at and then um, why something may have come off the table prior to going out to um, for public input. And then when I just look at this, the size of the project, um, you know, huge potential uh, for so just spurring economic um, growth and ec economic activity. Um, can you, it, it, I'm interested in whether local firms and also local employees um, have a, a preference. Um, just, I, I know um, that um, with family wage jobs, it would be um, a shame if our focus wasn't on um, our local Multnomah County residents and also firms that um, are are based here. So I know since slide it said 20% there's a local hiring, but I'm not sure what that what that means and that seems low. But if you could speak more about that um, and how that got said. Yeah, so the 20% uh, is a requirement for every sort of every hour that is spent on the job has to be um, from a person living within uh, those priority zip codes. Um, and so the, that was established um, through a process of sort of evaluating what the local market um, could provide and what would be needed to sort of supplement um, what we have uh, regionally uh, today. And then um, we don't have any requirements for um, specifically using local businesses but part of the conversation is encouraging the contractor to be engaging with the local community and local businesses so that we're really um, injecting those funds into our community and not sort of you know, bringing out of state firms to do the work. So there's a set, so the local preference for employees is by zip code. That was, was that in the presentation, the actual zip codes that I did not list the the present or the actual zip codes. There's, I think, there's around like 50 zip codes. There's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it would be great to get just like a schematic map yeah. of what the impact. Absolutely. Um, but that means that if, say, if you're outside of those zip codes, you wouldn't be considered local, even though you may be a local uh, Multnomah County residents and generating economic activity in Multnomah County. It's just those zip codes. Yeah, it's just from those particular zip codes. So those zip codes, they also looked at. Um, income within those zip codes as well, so that you could really inform uh, where the where the funds were going to. Just to be clear, I'm totally in support of the 20%. Yeah, I'm absolutely. also interested in the other 80%. Um, and then, uh, do we routinely? And I just think of the tax burden on um, Multnomah County businesses and. Um, people who live here, and I'm wondering if we, as a routine part of our work on projects like this, whether we do an analysis of the amount of business that goes to firms that are actually located here and to local employees. So say that the 20 plus the 80, what, what the total for local employees are? 
So uh, we do get on a weekly basis during construction, we get um, certified payrolls and that's basically a list of everyone who's worked on the project, including what their address is. So that's uh, absolutely an analysis that we can do to understand kind of where the workforce is coming from. And then on the firms, that would be, we'd have visibility to that as well? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, and then my last question is about the uh, design, and I, I'm not quite sure I understand. So the eastbound, this is gonna take an east sider perspective, but um, the eastbound lanes, there's one uh, vehicle lane, and then the other right now is designated as bus, and it says future streetcar. Does that mean when it becomes a streetcar, it's no longer a bus lane? or it's just, it will be bus plus the streetcar? I think it will be combined bus plus the streetcar, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious, um, my last question, sorry. The, why it was chosen to have that be on the eastbound versus the westbound? Um, be, uh, it was to set the cross-section up to uh, support the transportation needs for the future of the region. So again, as we mentioned, you know, this really promotes some of the values within our region in terms of prioritizing transit users and um, active transportation users um, most in our community. So we do anticipate that um, there'll be more of those users and the modal share of the region it will be reflected in this cross-section. And as Steve mentioned, um, their traffic flow across the bridge in this uh, configuration actually is um, pretty good during congestion. It's more about um, some congestion in the off-street network as you lead up to the bridge, like at some signals, say turning uh, left waiting getting to get onto the bridge. So we really feel like this decision reflects um, our community values and also supports our um, future transportation needs. And then uh, that, that bus lane was actually added as part of the uh, Burnside Maintenance Project back in about 2018 or so. And that, uh, that effort was uh, partnership between City of Portland, the county, and TriMet, and they had a specific project that looked at um, what was causing delays to, with, throughout the network uh, for TriMet, and this was a critical piece that really um, bus service was being interrupted and delayed going across the bridge because of the traffic backup, so wanting to create a space to uh, make that more efficient. Great, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Commissioner Beeson. Uh, thank you all. Um, I don't know that I have too many questions, but I, I guess I want to understand. So as it's been told to me, we built the Markham Bridge and everyone was like, that's ugly. Let's do the Fremont. Uh, we are going to advocate for the Fremont. And I guess, you know, wh when I think about what will happen, my partner and I live on different sides of the river. And when I think about being at work during the Cascadia earthquake, my top priority is getting home. And so thinking about what metaphorically this bridge will represent for a vast amount of Portlanders, 
I guess I am pushing us to find that nexus between design and cost that allows this to be something we can be proud of and that is a, a symbol for our community's resilience uh, in what I imagine will be the worst thing that we've ever faced. Um, so that's my plug for that. Uh, my second plug uh, is that my partner also works with kids on the spectrum. And in as much as we are thinking about the future workforce and Bridge City Tours, I can think of no more excited group than to go uh, to go on these tours uh, than kids on the spectrum who, frankly, already probably know more about these bridges than we do. Uh, so in as much as we are building long-term workforce development and thinking about those zip codes, our connections to the public schools and the folks who can bring those kids in early uh, to show them a path forward where they can be uh, uh, contributing parts of our community. Um, I just want to put a plug in for that. And I also just want to recognize, as Commissioner Stegman did, that is just so awesome. It shouldn't be unique. Um, but that for uh, women are sitting here uh, talking about building the bridge of the future is very exciting. So thank you very much uh, for all your work. Thank you, Commissioner Myron. Thank you so much um, for the presentation. And uh, Commissioner Beeson, I just love everything that you just said. That was, I mean, just I add um, all my support to all of those things. Um, and I just, um, a, a couple of questions that, that arose for me were, uh, as someone who crosses a bridge every day to get here, um, coming from the west side, uh, things don't flow great now, actually. Um, and I am anticipating kind of a nightmare uh, in terms of flow for whatever happens when this transition happens. And it, it might be a five minute differential between you know the different ways that the, the bridge can be replaced. Um, but it, I find, I was sort of surprised by the 10 to 15 minute-ish maybe delay. I'm just curious about the, it, it feels like it would be more and um, I'm also curious how PBOT is directly engaged in these conversations um, because I, I feel like even now, I over the past two years, I feel like I have less understanding of how our streets even work with all sorts of diversions and delays and lanes and colors and dashes and I, it's like oh my gosh I'm almost scared to use the streets and I feel I'm not sure where that intersection pardon the pun is with uh with PBOT and how the, that flow is being evaluated yeah, thanks, Commissioner, for the question. So I think first just to address the question that I heard about delay, um, and one of the things that Steve really held up, which I know has been a big part of the conversations about whether we have this temporary bridge or not, is that the delay is going to be unique depending on where you begin and where you end up. So potentially for someone it could be five, potentially for someone it could be 15 could be more, especially if you live in the West Hills. I know the West Hills generally see a lot of congestion. I used to do that commute myself pretty regularly. So, um, Okay. <laughs> well, just as an example, right? So, um, so you know, I think um, we are trying really hard 
um, frankly, to figure out the best way to get this project funded. And when we talked to the community about balancing all of the different things from the delay to the time we could get this project done in terms of delay to construction with the temporary bridge to what realistically we thought we could get in terms of funding to make this project a reality as a whole, when we balanced all of those things and then all the other values, what the community ended up recommending for us is to not do that temporary bridge, but I don't think anybody felt that the um, the benefit and drawback exercise meant that there weren't drawbacks for that. We we recognize that. So I, I'm not even speaking to the, 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 like I'm not saying, oh, we should do the temporary bridge. I'm, I'm totally accepting we should not do the temporary bridge. That is clear to me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm saying what are we doing to now to anticipate the massive flow challenges that will happen and how are we working with PBOT to plan in advance for that yeah. to, to, to minimize it. Yes, so um, currently we have been going through a year-long work program with the City of Portland with PBOT to do a bunch of modeling and then to analyze that modeling and then to figure out exactly what we wanted to move forward with the cross-section as it currently is. I think that modeling in the future, after we construct the bridge and understanding those impacts, we'll wanna continue to do that and we have a really strong partnership with PBOT so we'll continue to do that modeling to look at the impact and I think the important thing about the cross-section we ended up with is that it is in the end of the day paint on the pavement. So if modeling suggests that there's a better way to, um, for example, to you know, utilize Rose Lanes or one of those other programs, we could potentially change the way that those lanes are allocated in terms of like bus lane and things like that. Um, I think it's really important to know that um, things have really shifted since the pandemic in terms of how people use this infrastructure, how people access downtown. And so much of what PBOT has done in terms of their planning and all of the different policy documents that they have that govern the roadways which impact our bridge are trying to be future facing and are trying to look at how people are going to use this infrastructure and move in the future as well as now um, and achieve our goals around climate and equity and multimodal transportation and accessibility. And so um, this, is going to be an ongoing partnership with the city of Portland. We're gonna to have to continue to talk to them about how this bridge and all of our other bridges are accessed and utilized and how they fit in with the city of Portland's roadway and their, their traffic systems. And so we're committed to doing that and those conversations will in some ways be formalized through joint plans that we have with the city of Portland. But in other ways, it might be more of a problem solving. So we're recognizing there's an issue and we come together with the city to, to problem solve around what can we do with the infrastructure we have to improve the situation and maybe address that issue. So, um, you know, I think it's important that this project has really served us to build good relationships with the city in ways we hadn't necessarily had those relationships in the past, just because our roadways don't always overlap in the way that they do on the Burnside Bridge. So um, our team is really committed to continuing to monitor that, working with the city to problem solve, and then making sure that we're trying to accommodate as many users on this bridge as we can when we update those, um, those plans that we do in joint work with the city of Portland. Um. Um, and I'd, I'd love to talk more about that um, with you. Uh, when you when you talk about the future, I do feel like um, neither the city nor county have uh, like Forte isn't planning for the future. Future like the actual future. You know, it's um, there is a lot of responding to like so. For example, building 
the, you know, after construction, seeing what flow would be and continuing to monitor it and react to it. I think I would, would like to see real flow plans proactively and sort of the future in 20 years, like it, it's not that far away. It's gonna be here before we know it. And it is, I just imagine that it will be massively different, particularly from a transportation standpoint that, that we can't, I can't even, um, conceive of, but hopefully there are sort of those people even working with Institute for the Future, or different groups that are able to think far enough in advance to address some of the, the real future issues that might come up. Um, the other, you know, I know in, uh, I used to live in San Francisco and the Golden Gate Bridge had a movable meet, you know, it was a little, were, it, was, it, it was scary um, because you're like driving into oncoming traffic, but they had a movable median that, you know, depending whether the trap, like rush hour, you know, yeah. they moved it so there were more lanes yeah. going out, whatever, adjusting to the yeah. needs. And has any consideration been given to that sort of model? Because uh, I agree with Commissioner Brim Edwards' questions about like, well, why this one going this way? And yeah, during our joint work with the city on selecting the lane allocation, um, we did evaluate a reversible lane. The good news is is that the speeds on the bridge are so low that you don't need a hard barrier. Like their example in San Francisco, it can just be a matter of signaling yeah. above. Um, so there was some serious consideration given to that option. Um, at the end of the day, we opted not to move forward with that arrangement simply because we felt we weren't, it would be the first reversible lane in Oregon and we wanted to um, not be the first now, however, not preclude that option from being implemented in the future should the real-time traffic demand require it. So we are going to be monitoring traffic once the bridge opens and working with the city on evaluating is that something that needs to be implemented. So it's not on the table today, but certainly in people's minds in the future should um, the data show it's warranted. I would just say intuitively and having used the bridges every day and um, just thinking about the flow it, and and the future and and all of that that again rather than reacting to what you know oh we will monitor and then react and have to kind of implement that and then teach people how to do that and not wanting to be first how about we be first and so, like that would be awesome and then we can plan for it but anyway I, and then not use it if we monitor it and it's not actually making a difference and then you just don't have to use it. But um, anyway, that's, that would be my thoughts on that. And then my final question is around what our emergency plan is if the earthquake hits while we're building this. So, you know, over the next however many, eight, 10, whatever it's gonna be, um, because I was not, you know, as we saw from our recent experience with even just the extreme cold emergency when our bridges actually worked, um, there, there was not the kind of planning in advance that maybe allowed us to optimize what we could do. And so I worry very, very, very much about what will happen in the event of an actual, you know, natural disaster when our bridges don't function. 
Yeah, um, I can't speak to sort of the general county planning for, you know, what happens in the event of a major earthquake, specifically during construction. But what I can say is that uh, we've already started looking at scenarios um, that uh, reflect natural disasters. So looking at a major flooding event and what would happen and how would we be prepared? What are the plans that we have to have in place during construction to ensure that, um, you know, like debris coming down the river doesn't uh, destroy temporary um, work that we've put in the river, things like that. And also looking at what would happen in the event of a seismic event, whether it's Cascadia subduction zone, major earthquake or something smaller and what that would mean. So a lot of it um, is around how we design the constructability of the bridge and how, um, and then, you know, also just having plans in place for your basic kind of safety and emergency response for the entire project team. I think in the event that we would have a major subduction, subduction zone earthquake, um, we would be in a vastly different situation. In all likelihood, um, we would be looking at, um, you know, emergency authorization to do various procurements. We may be able to use the contractor to do work to um, help clear debris or to help with um, earthquake mitigation in addition to the work that they're already doing on the bridge. So I think um, those are all things that we're thinking about. They're things that will also go into our risk planning sessions that we have every month to think about how we can be prepared for those kinds of activities. Great, thank you. I mean, I, I would like to, you know, maybe this is something for the chair or board to consider for a future agenda is our plan for an actual emergency because um, I'm, I don't know what it is, frankly, and I think that we should. <laughs> and particularly in the context of this bridge that will be earthquake ready when it's done, but you know, what is our planning around it and with it as it's being constructed so we're earthquake ready. So um, thank you all again for, for your presentation. And Commissioner Myron, I just wanted to note one more thing too. We do have a really great partnership with the Regional Disaster Preparedness Organization um, on this project and then just generally um, the county as a whole and Mayor McInerney Ogle from Vancouver has actually been a really great uh, supporter of Earthquake Ready Burnside. So having that additional regional partnership um, and knowing the work that RDPO is doing to try and prepare us for Cascadia, um, but also lots of other emergencies too, has really um, been helpful in both advocating for funding for this project, but then also it's informed a lot of the ways that we've approached the work and the design. That's great, I, I was on the RDPO advisory board and um, I'm glad it sounds like they have they have shifted and are being more effective that's great great well thank you all so much I do want to I know it's been mentioned a couple times so I just want to say how like rare and wonderful it is to have um, women leading this project in the ways that you are both I mean especially in construction projects it's more rare so having folks um, sitting in these seats is really powerful especially the design and the construction leads which are which is very rare. So um, thank you all for all of the work. I know you're representing many people, many teams who have been working on this so far for seven years, and then we're going seven years in the future to get all the way done with um, construction. So this is a massive undertaking. Um, I appreciate the support from the board of being advocates for funding for this. I think that is, you know, in, in the chairs that we're sitting in, that is one of the most important roles that we have is to be advocates for the importance of this project, 
not just for Multnomah County, but for our city, for our region, um, our ability um, as, a, as a kind of economic engine for the state to be able to recover well from a Cascadia event. Um, you know, this is a huge thing. So um, just appreciate the work. We've, um, like I said, this is a very important year for the project, um, and I know there's a lot of great work to come. So thank you all for that. Um, and um, just appreciate this and look forward to getting some money and having a great design and being able to move forward with this. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Our next briefing is on Greater Portland. We have um, folks here and I will turn it over to Commissioner Stegman to introduce this item since she is sitting on, um, she is the representative for Greater Portland Inc. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. And I see Monique headed down to the desk. So good morning, everyone. I'm really excited to welcome Greater Portland, Inc. to provide an update on their marketing activities, economic strategies, and accomplishments. As the Multnomah County Board Liaison, I serve on Greater Portland, Inc.'s Board of Directors and have been an unwavering advocate for our county to foster economic growth and create opportunities for our residents. I especially want to highlight the collaborative spirit between Greater Portland, Inc. and Multnomah County as we work hand in hand to address the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. Our partnership signifies a shared commitment to the well-being of our community and underscores the importance of collaboration to achieve lasting impact. Just three years ago, I had the opportunity to be part of the hiring process for an extraordinary leader who took the helm of Greater Portland, Inc. And today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce that individual. I want to welcome Monique Claiborne, but before I do officially, uh, she is the president and CEO of Greater Portland, Inc. I wanted to say a few words about her. Monique has played a pivotal role in revitalizing our economic landscape and advancing the goals of Greater Portland, Inc., an organization in which Multnomah County proudly invests. Under her leadership, GPI has skillfully navigated the complexities of economic development by overseeing the implementation of the Greater Portland Comprehensive Economic Develop Strategy, also known as the SEDS, which allows our region to receive funding from the U.S. Department of Commerce, Commerce's uh, economic Development Agency and has yielded tangible progress. This strategy aligns with the goals and aspirations of Multnomah County, ensuring that our collective efforts enhance sustainable growth, inclusivity, and prosperity. I want to thank GPI and Multnomah County for the invaluable partnership that exists between us, because I know that by working together, we will continue to forge a path forward for a thriving and more resilient future for all. Monique, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Stegman. Uh, good morning, Commissioners. Thank you for having me here today. Um, this presentation precipitated a couple of months ago in the fall um, after meeting Chair Peterson um, at an event saying, hey, we need to hear from you. Um, come give an update. So uh, without further ado, I'll get started. Slide, please. So we are the only public-private partnership working to attract retain and expand businesses within the Greater Portland region. I often get asked, where does Greater Portland Inc. fall with Prosper Portland, with Business Oregon? And so when I took on the role, I actually drew a Venn diagram myself to figure it out. And so we do represent uh, Oregon as well as Southwest Washington. We represent the region, whereas Prosper Portland 
It's just the city economic development, business organs, the state, and then we work with a number of different partners, uh, OBI, OBC, depending on the, the project at hand. Next slide. We, again, are funded through private investment um, as well as public investment. We have over 80 public and private organizations, investors from legal firms, banks, marketing agencies, workforce development agencies um, that really make up our board of directors. And our board of directors is based on level of investment, and that's from um, 50,000 um, to about 6,000. And they're represented on our board um, and help with the strategic direction of the organization. Next slide. So what do we do? How do we attract businesses to the region? Um, how do we create sustainable jobs in the region? We offer these services free as a result of our investment to domestic and international companies that are interested in the region or that already have a presence here and they're looking to expand their footprint. And we really are the single point of contact for a company coming here. We know when a company's interested in expanding, uh, relocating, or again, expanding their footprint, they don't necessarily get caught up in jurisdictions. Um, they may be considering Beaverton, they may be considering Gresham, they may be considering Troutdale, right? And so they'll work with an organization like ours. So we provide them with market visits, real estate, uh, data. We get a lot of DEI requests um, in terms of demographics, certainly with talent. We work with our universities as well to talk about um, pipeline of talent, um, connect them to different key holders or stakeholders rather, key assets, and then project management. Next slide. So we work with companies. So some companies come to us, sometimes we go to them. We work with site selectors and real estate professionals that are hired by the companies, um, state and local practitioners who know that there's a company in their region that's expanding and they need, may need some assistance. We um, work with consulates and foreign governments that come to the region. We're seeing a big increase in that now that we're um, further, or rather uh, COVID is further behind us. Um, and then we also work with local headquarters um, and those within the supply chain. Again, another big source of leads uh, with a number of companies reshoring um, and concerned with, again, uh, supply chain issues as a result of COVID and their constraints there. Next slide. Within, our, within the industry clusters, we see a lot of uh, projects within computers and electronics, uh, semiconductor, apparel and outdoor, climate tech, bioscience is an emerging trend, um, food and beverage, um, and you name it. These are our industries that we're most competitive in, but we work with a number of companies outside of these industry clusters here. Next slide. In 2023, um, this is our impact that we made in the region. Just a document was over 10 pages, but like just a snapshot of that. But we brought in over or facilitated over 750 jobs. The majority of those jobs were projects already in the regions. They were from companies that were expanding in the region. My goal when I came into the role three years ago was to create 20,000 jobs by 2030. And so we're on track to do that. Um, I also wanted to bring greater attention to the organization both in the market and outside of the market and so we've made a big push within media and comms and you can see here um, where we've had a number of uh, local publications, out of market views and so we're tracking again 
who we're reaching, both in the region and outside of the region. I talked about computers and electronics earlier. So we advocated for the semiconductor industry. We advocated for incentives. I uh, wrote an article about that the state last year had only about $11 million in credits and incentives to provide to companies. And so you had this Federal CHIPS Act money, but there was no local money to support that. And so championed that, and um, as a result of that and a number of other efforts, um, you saw the governor um, approved $240 million in tax credits to 15 Oregon semiconductor expansion companies. So in addition to that, some other work that we've done, or sorry, other work or companies that have been involved in that are investors, right? So a number of the projects that we work on, as I mentioned, 750 of those jobs were companies that were already here. Some of them come from our current investors, um, and they refer projects to us, um, and so just wanted to highlight that it really is strength in numbers, and we don't go at it alone. Next slide, please. So in Monomah County, so since 2018, we've assisted nearly 150 organizations, stakeholders, uh, to support their economic development needs. And so assist could be providing data, um, market visits for companies, um, any type of analysis and intelligence, writing letters of support as they're seeking federal funds. Um, and so we're very active. Um, as you know, it's uh, the most vibrant, one of the most vibrant counties within um, our, the greater Portland region. We's off, we've also um, worked with a couple of, or more than a couple of project wins within the region. Um, Gresham Microchip is the largest probably success project that we've worked on. And you'll, we're gonna announce um, a big story on, on that later in terms of the public-private partnership that went into Microchip's expansion. But again, over 25 project wins that have led to over 1,000 jobs. Um, the compensation in terms of taxable wages that came out of that was over 300 million. The sales and output from those companies, uh, over 900 million. And then again, an almost an additional 200 indirect and induced jobs as a result of those 1,000 jobs that were created from projects within Multnomah County. Um, historically, the, or I should say historically, since I've been at the organization, Monoma County has invested 25,000 annually into GPI and most recently uh, 30 um, as a result of um, Lori's, or me begging Lori. So, next slide, please. Some, some of our competitive advantages will be on the next slide. Just want to highlight shortly uh, real estate, right? We, we hear a lot of bad things that are that's happening in the region, but we really are still very competitive on the West Coast uh, with real estate. Next slide. Our cost of living is much cheaper. Again, we do a, a, a lot of data and analysis um, and do peer comparisons often um, that we get these requests from companies. Next slide. We're just, I'm just gonna go through these slides quickly. Uh, local access, um, affordability, electricity, these are reasons that companies are interested um, in the region. Next slide. Our culture, uh, we are still number one for outdoor enthusiasts, number one city for inclusion, 100% uh, perfect score for LGBTQ equality, um, nearly 40% in industry employees that identify as non-white. Again, these are statistics and data that we're often asked for, and again, assets for the region. Next slide. Here's some additional accolades uh, for the region and why, uh, again, the work that we do is important and why we still are a magnet 
for um, job creation in the region. Next slide. But then there's this perception issue. Next slide, please. Um, we've seen the headlines, Wall Street Journal, um, LA Times, we kind of can't escape it as, as far and as hard as we try um, to, to leave it behind. Next slide. And so what we did is we brought in a consultant to do a feasibility study to understand um, from, from a data standpoint what our challenges are. And again, there's reputation, uh, there's talent, there's um, global competition, that's a reality, and then just the, the suboptimal economic development structure here in the region if you compare uh, to the Midwest or to the South. And so these are challenges um, for organizations like Greater Portland Inc. And, and for the region. Next slide. So uh, the consultant also did a perception survey and they wanted to know how does Greater Portland rank as a place to do business as well as a place to live. And so they surveyed locals, those that were here and then left. Um, those are tra transplants like myself and at a scale of one to five in both categories, whether you decided to live here or do business here, we, we scored pretty low. Um, but live here was, was slightly higher than to do business here. Next slide. And so what were some of those factors that contributed to um, this, this score in the previous slide? Um, we do well with international travel. We know our airport is ranked pretty high. Um, the colleges and universities here, again, the quality of life goes back to some of the accolades that I mentioned. Uh, but when it comes to the tax burden and cost of living and regulatory environment, we really got dinged pretty, pretty badly there. Next slide. So where do folks hear this information? Um, it still comes from industry peers, business travel, word of mouth, online sources. And so is there an opportunity we saw to change the narrative? And it would be changing the narrative um, where people collect their information, it would be changing the narrative as to the perception of quality of life, tax burden, um, and then changing the narrative, again, with transplants versus boomerangs and, and locals. Next slide. So it came down to how do, we, how do you think we promote ourselves? And again, pretty, pretty low on a scale of, of one to five. Next, next slide. And so we decided, next slide, um, initiatives for the next couple of years would be regional promotion and really lean into that, as well as regional coordination. Next slide. And so we thought that, and the Central City Task Force thought that too, which was made up of um, our region's leaders. Um, and one of the recommendations is for Greater Portland Inc. to sponsor a national and international open for business marketing campaign to highlight business openings and expansions, tourism destinations, and other positive news stories. Next slide. And so we had already started doing the work, and so the timing was great. And so again, our consultant came in and said, here are some areas for marketing strategy and what that looks like. Um, search engine optimization, people are Googling Portland, Greater Portland, where do you start a business? Um, and we need to make sure that uh, we are countering negative search terms, um, but then the organization and positive things about the, the region are coming up in those results. A strategic public relations campaign, um, paid digital advertising, business outreach going to them, um, high profile media partnerships, dynamic social media presence, as well as website enhancements. Again, all best practices of economic development organizations across the country. Next slide. And so they also developed our marketing campaign, The Land of Way More. Um, as you know, 
right? Greater Portland, our organization also, again, like I said, goes across the river, Southwest Washington. But this year we're gonna be focusing on amplifying our digital presence with SEO, boosting our news coverage, um, sharing a lot more videos um, about the Greater Portland strengths, and then displaying a number of digital ads across the web. Next slide. Um, and we're also requesting $5 million from the state legislature uh, to fund this request, and we'll find out early March how we do. And then last slide, again, we talked, I talked about the regional coordination. Um, this year we had our annual Meet the Mayors event, and the idea is for us to gather together to discuss issues within the Portland region. As I mentioned, we, there are strength in numbers, and um, I'd like to just play a short video um, from that meeting, and you can get a good idea of the regional coordination and expectations for the year. Mayors and business leaders from around the metro area met today to talk about the challenges they're facing and how they can work together to reach common goals like securing funding from the state. Oxwell's Drew Marine was there as they listened to each other's hopes for the future. Partnership. We have to do things together. Our children, our future of Oregon depends on what we're doing right now. From Beaverton to Gresham and Tualatin, mayors from around the metro area can agree there are some challenges they're all facing, whether that's funding for transportation infrastructure or the need to expand urban growth boundaries. Cities believe by bringing businesses into these conversations, they can better accomplish their goals. We want to meet with the business community, understand where they're at with community problems, and have an opportunity to not only share the really great things that are happening in cities, but to be real and honest and have a shared understanding of things we could do better. And how do we partner to go after big things that we need money for infrastructure from the state when it comes to your business. We need roads, we need development. One of the goals of this meeting, organized by Greater Portland Inc., is to come up with a strategy to ask for $5 million this legislative session in hopes of marketing Oregon as a destination for businesses. An endeavor Gresham's mayor Travis Stovall is familiar with after microchip technology recently got a $72 million investment from the federal government. I mean, part of the reason why, you know, we were able to attract those dollars here to Gresham at the federal level was the fact that folks, you know, organizations like TPI, working with the state, working with our local businesses, our local business community to expand the visibility. I mean, without those of investments, you know, we're not really showing up when site selectors come around, when key organizations like Microchip are making investments into their facilities on a global scale. Drew Marine, Fox 12 Oregon. Thank you. That concludes my presentation. Well, thank you so much for being here, Monique. I'm so glad that our conversation that we had um, led to this. I was, you know, uh, we were having the conversation that I think in my seven years here, I don't know that Greater Portland Inc. has ever given a presentation, and I think the fact that Multnomah County has been um, a platinum member of the organization for so many years, and um, that you know we've had different board members spend a lot of time, you know, in, on the board and serving on this, um, especially as we're all, you know, we're, there's so much work happening right now in partnership of what can we do to respond to the needs of our region to really promote what's happening and to make changes so that we can be, you know, the thriving place we need to be. I wanted to make sure that this board had a chance to do that. So really appreciate um, you being here and sharing such um, really interesting and good information with us today. Um, we'll go to the board to see if there are any questions and comments. I'll start with Commissioner Grim Edwards. Good morning. It's good to see you. Um, in the context of Multnomah County versus Washington County, which is our uh, previous engagement, um, 
So I had um, just a couple questions, but more also some just um, thoughts for um, the commission. I would be interested in, um, while well, you're a, you have a regional focus, um, it does include Multnomah County, I'd be interested in slides seven and eight, uh, more detail on the Multnomah County um, wins, what the 26 projects were. Um, there's a net thousand jobs increase, but uh, there's a thousand job increase, but I'm interested in like whether that's a net and maybe whether you have more data where we click down of like how we're doing specifically as a county within the broader region. I know Washington County has a very robust um, economic development strategy as a county and um, are actively attracting both jobs and business expansion, but also um, new businesses. So I'd be curious um, whether, and not here, but um, you could supply additional information just so we could, t we could take a deep dive into sort of the Multnomah County numbers and see how we're, we're doing. Is that possible? Yeah, I can get that information to you. Great. Um, and I also want to just want to say I really appreciate the um, sort of the preview of what our competitive advantages are as a region and what the perceptions are. Because um, I think it um, sometimes we're so deep into the work um, in our own county that we're, um, if we take a broaden the aperture and look at, um, you know, what, what we have that are our advantages and then uh, places where we have challenges, I think it will allow to do our, our work better. Uh, so I really appreciate that and I'll be interested as you move ahead with the, the future work um, of uh, tackling the perceptions uh, that people have of the regions and how we um, ad advance our region's economic interests, how Multnomah County can play into that. So just a, f a future like invitation to like how can, how can we um, integrate into that larger strategy, um, specifically for Multnomah County. Um, and then this is more for, um, I guess, the rest of the commission interested in a future more robust discussion about um, the county's role in economic development. In the 17 years I spent living in Multnomah County but driving to Washington County working for, um, I think what would be described as Oregon's most successful small business growth story out at Nike, um, had a chance to work very closely with Washington County and um, just they have a, an approach which is, I think it always keeps the county's interest front and center but they figure, find ways to also um, find way, ways in which there can be wins for new businesses, but also businesses wanting to expand. So it's not at the expense of Washington County, but it is like, how do we figure out a win-win? Um, they know if they have businesses growing and expanding in Washington County, that um, what that means for the health of their community, it means more money for local services. Um, so I'm interested in better understanding what our economic development strategy is. And I say, I think Washington County um, really does an excellent job of that. And again, through the lens of self-interest of if you have a robust um, employer base that pays family wage jobs and better, um, what that means for the services then you can offer to uh, 
to residents of the county. So I'm interested in having that as, as a discussion. And then also um, how we might look at um, Greater Portland Inc.'s strategies going forward and how we, again, amplify those or make them specific to, to Multnomah County. Um, I see all too often, and having talked to lots of businesses that were interested in coming to the region, um, when I was in my previous professional capacity at Nike, um, most of the conversations were around locating in Clackamas or Washington County. Again, great for, great for them, but um, now that I'm in a position of um, self-interest of Multnomah County, uh, obviously, always as a resident of Multnomah County, have a self-interest, but um, how we can make Multnomah County a place where there's continued robust economic growth and also like our, our small business strategy of um, lots of small businesses grow into larger businesses that pay family wage jobs and how we encourage those. So um, again, I appreciate the presentation, the work that you're doing, and I'd love for us to have a conversation about how we can um, really sort of build off of that. Great, Thanks. thank you, Commissioner Berman Edwards. Commissioner Beeson. Thank you, Monique, it's nice to see you. Um, I, I'm wondering how, uh, with the sort of limited resources, how you all um, balance this, uh, maybe to uh, Commissioner Brim Edwards' uh, line of questioning, the balance between the grow your own and the and recruit into the region. How are um, how do you approach that that tension or that conversation? So 80% of business growth comes from existing businesses, mm -hmm. and it's kind of back to the, again 80-20. And so we do put about 80% of our effort working with businesses currently in the region to make sure that they expand here. So Microchip is a perfect example of they're on our board, um, their construction team, they're on our board. They're saying, hey, these are the conversations that are happening behind closed doors. We want you a part of those discussions. They're not getting money from the state. We believe you can be an advocate for that. Uh, can you use some of the other investors uh, or your, your network of investors uh, to help promote incentives and promote our interests uh, so we can get additional incentives growth um, for, for the company. Um, and so that's, with our limited budget, how we work around that. And we think, again, with additional funds from the state that we would have a campaign that actually starts within the region as well. What's critical about that, too, is companies that are here, the decision makers, are often outside of the state as well. And so a marketing campaign that it's national would help companies still expand here in the region. Thank you. Those are, those are the only question. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner Myron. Thank you, Monique. Um, this is really interesting, and um, I, you know, I think that uh, Commissioner Brim Edwards' points were were really spot on in terms of considering where uh, the what the county's role is in terms of economic development. Um, it is not a core, like it's not as clear cut as say the city or, you know, travel Portland, some of these uh, different organizations and regional governments, but um, we rely on the tax base, the, the taxes brought in um, from our local businesses uh, and individuals and um, our mission is fostered by the 
existence of well-paying and family wage jobs in the region. And so there is such a crucial nexus and thinking about what what that role is as the county in fostering that is is so important. And um, you know, as another little startup, my my I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area before Silicon Valley, and my dad started um, uh, at the organization with the people who founded Intel and started over, then was brought over to Intel as a startup. So. I watched that growth as a kid growing up, and so it is uh, really um, dear to my heart, especially chip manufacturers, uh, <laughs> to um, to be uh, invested and um, supportive of all of that work um, to make our community grow and thrive. So. Um, I really appreciate the presentation and look forward to opportunities to engage um, as a board, as a commissioner and, um, and as a board. Thank you. So what I'll do is when I provide data on Monomah County, I'll also provide some ideas of opportunities where I think we could collaborate further with each other. That's, that sounds wonderful. Thank you. Commissioner Segman. Thank you, Chair. Monique, thank you so much for being here. Uh, you know, I've long advocated uh, that Multnomah County have an economic development department. Uh, and in the interim, uh, I'm fortunate to have Hayden, who is kind of a, a, a one-person uh, economic development team over there. So uh, I do think that Multnomah County um, could play a larger role. And uh, in the interim, I, I think uh, that GPI really is an extension of that work being done. So I really appreciate all the work. And the fact that, that you are a regional organization, so from Troutdale to Beaverton to Washington, uh, anytime we bring jobs and economic development into the region, it helps the entire area. So it's not focused on one city or one jurisdiction. Uh, I really appreciate the uh, marketing strategy that, that the board and you have taken on, Monique, and the Open for Business marketing campaign, because if we don't tell our story, no one else will. And we do have challenges here, but I believe that our assets far outweigh those challenges. I was surprised to see some of the, the statistics that you know talked about the low cost of utilities. And yeah, there are some really, really positive uh, business reasons uh, for business to want to relocate here. And you know, what more beautiful place on earth to live. Uh, so I want to thank you for being here and updating us. And uh, you know that you always have my support. And uh, Multnomah County is uh, proud to be a partner with you. Thank you. Thank you. And um, just really appreciate the time and the presentation. I will say I think that this is um, this, one of the reasons is because I also have interest in economic development and just because it is this symbiotic relationship, right? Because we do benefit from businesses and, and wages that are here in Multnomah County for the services that we provide that are so crucial to our entire community. So it, it, it is something that that connection is really important, the work that we do. I also think that you know the conversations that are happening with Greater Portland Inc., with Travel Portland, with some of these other organizations that we are partners and have and have um, seats on their board. You know, it's really important for us as a as a government organization, for all of us as elected officials, to be a part of those conversations. And so, I'm really glad that we've had this opportunity to to have that dialogue with you today, and and look forward to more to come. Um, so, thank you so much for being here.
That concludes our business for today. Our next meeting is scheduled for Thursday, February 1st. There being no further business, the meeting is adjourned.